listening to the Quids Podcast, hosted by the Queer Community Collective. We are a not-for-profit operating in Vancouver, Canada, dedicated to building healthy, supportive, and inclusive community across Metro Vancouver. The QCC structures their community around events, education, visibility campaigns, small business initiatives, and peer support. We hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Please note, we often have heavy conversations around complex topics. We do our best to label the episodes with trigger warnings and content summaries. However, always proceed with caution. And we believe in two-way conversations. So if you have feedback for the hosts, or if something didn't resonate with you, we would love to hear about it. Thanks for listening. Everyone, welcome to the third episode of our community series. We are here today with S, myself, and Galen. What's up? Today's topic is religious communities. So we are going to discuss what the benefits are to being in a community faith and also discuss the harm that Christians inflict on their own people and families. We have asked Beth Carlson Molina, a co-pastor of Open Way Church, to be on this episode with us as a queer identifying pastor. Galen and I have come up with some pretty difficult questions that illuminate our own struggles with religious trauma. And through these discussions, we hope to leave you with some guidance on how to navigate your intersecting faith or spirituality and queer identities. This episode is titled Religious Communities, but we will be talking from a predominantly Christian lens as that is our personal experiences. We will be expanding this conversation next season. Spoiler! to be more inclusive of religious and faith perspectives. So if you are a queer who is a recovering religious kid or who identifies as a queer person of faith, we would love to have you. Send us an email or DM to set that up. I also want to mention that the target audience for this episode is not just queer folks, but also our straight cisgendered Christian communities. I personally am really nervous about recording this episode because it's such a deeply vulnerable topic. But I also want the people I know to be able to engage with me on this, not in a theological way, but in a human way, and really listen to the difficult experiences that we all had growing up in these communities and how it is still impacting us all the time. So without further ado, let's get into it. Beth, let's start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you're passionate about, and then tell us what the word community means to you. Sounds good. Yeah. So my name is Beth. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a cisgender queer woman. Um, I also use the term gay um, for myself. I live in Vancouver with my wife, Denise, and our housemate, Tim. And I am an auntie to two nibblings uh, who are actually going to be staying with us for a week starting tomorrow. So we're a little worried about that. (laughs) How well that'll go. Uh, They're eight and six. And how else do I identify or what I'm passionate about? I'm passionate about birds. I'm a huge bird fanatic. I have become a climate activist in the last year or so, I would say. I love to write. I probably have a bit of imposter syndrome around being a writer, but something I'm exploring. And I'm a pastor, as you said, a co-pastor and also a wedding officiant is another one of my big roles on the side. Uh, Lots of queer weddings in my life, which is really fun. And then in terms of community, yeah, I, uh, I see community as 
intentionally overlapping your life with other people. And I think it's important that you find belonging and things that you share in common with those people, but also that you're able to grow by rubbing it up against what's different about you and by learning about each other. So that's it in a nutshell. I really like that. That was, yeah. that was a very good uh, description. Hmm. I love that. I have a question. Yeah. Beth, what's your favorite bird? <laughs> oh man, they're like children. You can't choose, right? But um, I don't know. In terms of local ones, I really like the um the pileated woodpecker. It's like the woodpecker with the huge um like kind of spiked hair red going back, and they like just hammer at these trees and they're huge birds, and I think they're a lot of fun. But I've been posting a bird of the day on my Instagram stories for like the last several months and gotten into tons of different birds. That sounds like a very punk rock bird. It is a pretty punk rock bird, yeah. <laughs> I actually have seen one of those not hammering on a tree, but like hammering on the cap of this person's tin roof. And it was oh, just yeah. like jamming out. I swear I was just making music. Definitely. And just being in a metal band, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I also just want to say even your answer to what the word community means to you was a very writer wait thank you (laughs) so let me just validate that identity for you thanks it actually really came out of so for a while in my life i was helping to run a community that was a national queer christian community that sadly ended last year but at all of our events and retreats we would try to have intentional times to gather with people who shared identities like a a trans group and a a group for people over 50 and you know these things that we had that we really wanted to connect with people over that particular experience but then we'd also put people in these very diverse groups intentionally diverse so they could tell each other their stories and, and get to know and understand each other better and I just that really um impacted how I understand community now yeah that's really that's really cool very it's a great way to like push people outside of their comfort zone exactly yep but also give them that comfort and the sense of belonging with people who understand what it's like to be them I think you need a good balance of those things yeah some some commonality and solidarity right also some differences exactly yeah why don't you tell us about the church that you pastor open way church what is it like why is it called the queer church um what's its origin story (laughs) Yeah. Well, I've never heard it called the queer church, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I think we do have probably about 50% at least of the people who um, attend or are members of Open Way are queer in some, some part of that spectrum. And yeah, I didn't set out to start a queer church, but I myself am queer. So I tend to draw other queers to myself. I think that's how queer community works. There's like so few degrees of separation between anybody in the local queer community, at least in Vancouver, that uh, almost everybody is friends of friends and hears about things through the network. So yeah, basically, I mean, this origin story kind of goes back to me in Bible school, realizing I was supposed to be a pastor before I realized I was queer. (laughs) So that kind of created a dilemma where I was like, man, if this is what I think I'm meant to do, this got to fit somehow with this queer part of me. And that's a whole other story, a whole long story about how my wife and I met at seminary and both realized we were queer and tried to figure out how that was going to fit as Baptist pastors, which it really didn't. But uh, we ended up leaving the Baptist church and getting jobs with this community after we got married, this uh, generous space community I was telling you about before. And then 
as I was involved with that, this national community where I'm interacting with people all across the country, I started to really want a local community. Because I think even as you guys are talking about community in general, like there's a place to be connected to people virtually and across even the globe. And that's been a huge boost, I think, for queer folks who felt really isolated and haven't known people locally where they are. But there is still such a hunger, I think, to be in the same space as people, physical space, and to um, to really overlap your life uh, locally as well. And that's what I was starting to want. I just wanted a group of people that we could kind of do life together and, you know, be present for each other in really hard moments and really great moments. So when I moved back to Vancouver with my wife, Denise, I really wanted to start a, a church that would be welcoming of anybody that wouldn't have like a, I guess, a stained glass ceiling where certain people aren't allowed to do this or certain people aren't allowed to marry this person where it was just more open. But I didn't want to do it by myself. So I was kind of starting to talk about it with people, the idea and saying, you know, I'd really like a partner who would do this with me. And uh, the weirdest thing was that when Denise, my wife, was was back in Vancouver visiting a friend, uh, she mentioned it. And her friend's dad actually happened to be in the room. And he said, I would do that with Beth. <laughs> And he, his name is Mark, and he is a straight, cis, white man in his 60s who had been, you know, pastoring on and off and was kind of semi-retired. And it ended up being the perfect fit, really, because he had this, this um, humility, really this awareness of his own privilege and this experience that he brought to the table. And it fit so well with um, what I was bringing. And he keeps me really grounded and has a great, really dad joke kind of sense of humor. <laughs> that adds this kind of really lighthearted flavor to what we do um, and has just brought tons of wisdom to what we're doing. Um, so we got this thing started, I guess, almost five years ago, four and a half years ago, we just started it up. We didn't have any denomination or bigger group sponsoring us or giving us money. We just volunteered our time and, you know, scraped together a little bit to rent out a space and started to see who would show up. And of course it was nobody we expected would show up. <laughs> it was all random people that we didn't really know. And yeah. it started very slow and very small. And then of course COVID hit about two years in and we've been on zoom for two years now, which has been its own sort of weird thing, but I think it's worked for us because a lot of the people that want to come are people who are a little tentative about church because they've experienced trauma, religious trauma, spiritual trauma, queer trauma. And they, it's kind of nice actually to be able to show up with your camera off and be able to mute it when you're, when you're not sure what's going on and you don't want to participate in a certain part of it because it triggers you. Like it's actually kind of a great way to enter um, without putting yourself at too much risk and just testing the waters, which I really recommend for any queer person that's trying out um, any kind of religion for the first time or the first time in a long time. It's just taking that time to really see, is this a safe space for me? Will I really belong here? Or will it be like a bait and switch situation where I think it's inclusive and welcoming, but they're going to drop the hammer later on. So, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit. What, what else did you want to know about it? That was great. Thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> I agree that being baited and switched is one of the worst yeah. religious experiences. Like, especially you grow up and then you leave that space mm -hmm. and that like for myself, I've come back to it a few times and then been traumatized again because yeah. people who 
thought were open and welcoming were not as open and welcoming as they made themselves out to be. And then it just like, it just continually like puts up these walls around yourself. And like it compounds the pain. Like once you've had it once, if you have it again, it just makes you even less likely to want to trust anybody. It's that compounding betrayal that happens, I think. And it happens to so many queer people because everybody wants to put all are welcome on their sign, (laughs) their church sign, (laughs) but it's not true for a lot of churches. And sometimes they don't even realize it's not true. Oh, I think there's such a big difference between like wanting to be welcome. And then what can you do to take steps to actually be welcoming to communities? Like there's so many little things that, yeah, people are just unaware of, and it's not even necessarily entirely their fault, but I think it makes it easier because you are an active part of the community that you understand what certain aspects of the community needs mm-hmm. in order to actually feel welcome. Like even just explaining like, oh, Zoom feels like relatively safe because you can mute it and like no one can see you. And there's like right. that anonymity to like go in as far as you want to go in or as far as you're prepared to go in at that moment. And it was like exactly my experience going through it. I was like, Oh, this is so nice. Like I can just observe and see how I feel. And no one has to like observe me going through how I feel. (laughs) Right. Or awkwardly try to shake your hand at any point. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you're so right. Like, I think one of the things I really respect about the United Church is for a while now, they've had a whole process called the Affirm process that they force their churches to go through if they want to put a rainbow flag on the front. So you can't just slap it on your sign. You actually have to educate yourselves as a church and and understand what queer people need and want and are looking for and what might be microaggressions that would really make them triggered or react. Um, So I think that we need more of that in churches because not every church can have a queer pastor who might know more of that instinctively. Well, and also just being queer identifying doesn't mean that you know exactly what every part of the queer community needs. Totally. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like as a cis person, I've had to have such an education and I'm still on that journey of really understanding what trans and non-binary gender fluid folks really are looking for. And then even more so for people in the two-spirit category where they're dealing with, you know, genocide and colonialism caused by so much of the church on top of their queerness. And yeah, so for sure. So what about open way church? Because you said it was about 50% queer identifying. Mm-hmm. What attracts cisgendered hetero folks to the church? <laughs> That's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to hang out with the cool kids? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, queers are pretty freaking cool. <laughs> they are pretty cool. I don't blame them, really. But most, I mean, a lot of them end up being, I mean, so many people are coming out these days that a lot of them are people who have friends and family members who are queer and they have seen and felt um, the secondary effects definitely of queer phobia in their churches firsthand. And they've just decided they don't want to tolerate it anymore, that they they can't attend a church that wouldn't welcome the people they love. And um, they're tired of those kind of casual drive-by sermon references to the sinfulness of homosexuality or something they can't put up with that anymore so they 
they uh, decide to come. But I think it's also people who have felt like they don't fit in for other reasons. Like our, our hope at Open Way is to be a place where no closets have to exist. So it's not just that queerness is okay, but that questions and doubts are okay, that mental health crises are okay. Like there's so many things churches have shamed and excluded people for that we're just really trying to say, like, do we need that really? <laughs> Can we approach that differently? And so I think there's a lot of cisset people who are coming from those places too. Cool. I love that. And also I think we've talked about this before in our community series, but diversity really strengthens a community yeah. and difference of thought, mm. difference of opinion and difference of identity mm-hmm. really strengthens. So while all queer spaces are magical and amazing and we love them, especially for a community that's support based like mm-hmm. a church is, I, I think it's really important that it be diverse with allies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it matters how power is held in those groups. Like I do think it has been important for us as co-pastors to reflect different identities, but Mark is constantly pushing me <laughs> into the spotlight. Like he, again, is somebody who holds his privilege with a lot of awareness and thoughtfulness and And I think, yeah, trying to have the diversity while still paying attention to those power dynamics and who's helping to make the decisions. Is is the diversity a tokenistic kind of thing? Is it something where it's just, you know, trying to get different faces on a church website (laughs) or is it something that goes deep into the power structure? I'm really interested to hear about. So the United Church as a whole has like a kind of a rainbow thicker program I I guess I'm so out of touch with like church divisions and like ways in which churches are I guess active in different communities but I I'd love if you explain that a a little bit more that's something that the United Church is doing as a whole or yeah so the United Church is one of the um the first denominations in Canada that really took pains to try to examine its own homophobia and queerphobia and change their policies um, around who's allowed to be a pastor and who's allowed to get married. And of course, it still has a long history of harm against queer people, but they, they really were some of the pioneers for trying to stop that and trying to have a different approach. And so they that doesn't mean every you know United Church across the country has gone through that program or has really wrestled with that on an individual church level. But as a denomination, as a whole system, they really do have a lot of resources in place and they prioritize that kind of thing happening. So kind of have to watch which particular church you're at. But I would say in Canada, the United Church, as well as um, some parts of the Lutheran Church, some congregations in the Anglican Church tend to be the spaces that people can find um, less queer phobia. <laughs> Maybe as well, I'll say just to be safe. <laughs> oh, that's so that's so interesting. I just I had no idea that. I guess things had progressed to that extent or so far as that. That's so cool. Mm. Still a lot of work left to do, but yeah, there's some, there's some good signs. (laughs) I feel like extremism gets more headlines. Yep. And acceptance and affirmation does not tend to get the same kind of headlines. It's like that difference between like negative news versus positive news. And so if you are not interacting with like religious or Christian spaces, you wouldn't know Mm. that that work has been done. 
That's really wise. Yeah. S. And I think that also just because a church has changed or started grappling with that doesn't mean the trust is rebuilt. Right. (laughs) So just because some churches, you know, have done the work, it's not going to automatically draw queer people back. Like there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that needs to happen, a lot of healing. And so, yeah, I think it it will still take decades maybe for, for people to feel like, Oh, church could be a place that I feel safe. Let's kind of expand the conversation to be, um, a little more general and let's talk about what does the word religion even mean so i was looking it up a couple of days ago and i found that it comes from latin and there's kind of two words in latin that relate to the word religion one is religio which means conscientiousness awe sanctity and respect and then religare which means bind together So I found that really interesting because the idea of community is built into the word religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of an etymology nerd as well. (laughs) I love to go, you know, I'm constantly being like, where does that word come from? Uh, And I go search it online. Yeah, I've always been interested in the fact that the first place that word was applied was actually within monasteries, the word religion, that it used to really refer to people who had taken monastic vows, which is this very extreme form of binding yourself to a community and to God is this lifelong kind of commitment, right? So then it kind of expanded beyond that. That's so interesting. Now I think it has kind of the opposite associations, honestly, like I love that it has its roots in being bound together, but I feel like when people hear the word religion, they hear separation, like they hear the kind of self-righteousness that separates people into different categories, at least in people's minds. And also the kind of system that reminds us of how far we are from God. Like so much of what we associate with religion has to do with, oh, you're awful. You're, you deserve punishment. Like you are not close to God. Or if you do, then if you are, then you've had to do all these things to get there. And also separation from the world. Mm-hmm. Totally. The, there's a predominant thought within Christian theology. That's like, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And so like our religious community is this like encircled pocket Mm -hmm. that is separate from the rest of the world. Definitely. Which is really not how I saw Jesus living, but I think it has become this, this sort of like, uh, isolating factor within, especially the Christian faith of like, we need to create an ark, like Noah's ark and everything good is in there and everything else will just let let it get flooded and and killed. (laughs) Yeah, honestly. Yeah. That's a really good. I think I've always like struggled with the concept that one religion has everything right over every other religion. But I just, I wonder if they like maybe all have something right or they're all just trying to explain these like very philosophical questions that we, none of us actually really have the exact answer to. So I just, I always find that interesting with like the commonality and the threads between like say Christianity to towards like Buddhism, towards any other religion. It feels like the common, common threads are always there, but just the names and the stories are slightly different. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot that we have in common that we don't even always know because there's this fear sometimes that if you learn more about other people's faiths, then it's going to threaten 
your idea that you've got it all together mm-hmm. in your faith. <laughs> you have the only source of truth. I remember reading this book called Holy Envy, and it was written by a, a minister, a woman who taught world religions class. So she was a Christian minister, but she taught about world religions and she ended up feeling envious <laughs> of some of these other religions that she was teaching and feeling like, wow, I really think they have the corner on this or they've figured this out a little more than we have. And in the end, it and it, it taught her what was unique about her own faith and helped her to fall in love with some of that, but also to see the image of God in people who were so different from her and figure out that she could learn from them too. So I think we need a little more of that stretching beyond what we're used to. So as opposed to believing that like we in like people in one faith have a monopoly on the truth, do you think world religions would be closer to the truth if we all learned from one another? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there there are overlapping areas, like almost every religion has some form of the golden rule built in, you know, the do unto mm-hmm. others kind of thing. But there's still definitely a lot of differences in how we see suffering and how we see, you know, our, our core person that we're worshiping or following. I just think that even if our beliefs don't, if we don't get closer to the truth, we get closer to living the way we're supposed to live, you know, as the more we meet people who are different from us, we understand that maybe it's not all about having the perfect belief system. Maybe it's actually how we treat each other, you know? And so we have to actually interact with people who are different to figure out how to live, I think. I think for me too, like meeting people of different faiths and like learning a little bit about other faiths have helped me learn what to unlearn from my upbringing. Like what is not true and what's a lie and what I can just let go of Mm. because I meet other people who are living in ways that I'm, I admire and I really respect. And I realize that I don't have that because of this thing that I learned that is (laughs) not benefiting me. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Let's talk about what religions in general, what do they do well? How do they build community? Because religious communities are some of the strongest, most resolute communities on the globe. And so there, there are a lot of things that they do really well. Hmm. I mean, I feel like it's easier to think of the things that they don't do well. <laughs> but I, I appreciate that you're starting with this question. <laughs> uh-huh. That's on go, go ahead, Galen. You're going to say something. Yeah, I, I feel like I don't know. I feel like inherently people are a little bit, I don't know, flaky. Maybe that's just being in Vancouver, but I just feel like in order to get a group of people to do something one time a week and or to gather one time a week for anything else, we just don't put that level of importance on anything else. But I think just the Mm -hmm. reoccurrence of it, the same time every week, we'll all be there. That I feel like in and of itself just brings this closeness. It's, I think the reason why I feel so close to like coworkers or like people that or like roommates that you live with or something, it's just like being in proximity at a certain time. That's all really the true. Time. Structured connection. Yeah, it's like building rhythms and rituals that are associated with seasons and times. I think that really ends up building itself into your life in a way that strengthens it. Yeah, I'm not, I don't even really go to church anymore, but like every, you know, Christmas or Easter, 
it like always still pops up in my head. Yeah. And I'm like, that's how deep that sort of ritual and idea goes to for me, especially growing up in the church. So there's patterns, I think just humans, humans replaying their patterns and finding comfort yeah. in those and I patterns. Think it's around time, but it's also around symbol and around ritual. And I think all communities have their own symbols and rituals, but there may be the most apparent or defined in Christianity and in other religions where you can point immediately to the things that hold meaning and hold significance that you do and that you structure your week around, you know, whereas in a queer community, maybe, you know, a symbol might be a flag, a symbol might be some sort of meal that you gather around or something, but it's kind of, there's this history of the symbols and the rituals in, in religions that gives them this added sense of, of meaning for people. True. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, when Euphoria, the last episode or last season of Euphoria was playing, I gathered every Sunday with the same group of people to watch the majority of the episodes. And that already little community that we built around a TV show felt, felt very yeah. powerful. And we were like, the last one, we were like, oh, there's nothing next Sunday. I was like, should we just meet next Sunday and have dinner That's and great. watch something else? It looks like a, it's like a queer hour of power. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Queer hour of power. (laughs) I think also when you have that kind of stability that like no matter what's going on in your life or in other people's lives, every single Sunday that church is open and there will be people there and that it's a space for you to come and, you know, have a cup of coffee even. It really fosters a sense of belonging. Mm hmm to something that's like greater than yourself, which in our very individualistic society is kind of rare. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that belonging is, is such a craving for so many of us and it's been hard, especially through COVID to find it for some of us. Yeah. I think also just this at its best religion, religious communities give you space to ask big questions. Probably euphoria does that too, because it sparks all kinds of conversations, but there is this sense that this is the place where I bring, you know, my biggest issues, my biggest, you know, philosophical wonderings. And if it is a safe and a religious community that allows for questions and doubts, you know, you can wrestle with that with other people instead of having to hold all of that in your own head. I think it too inherently encourages reflection. Yep. That is also something that's kind of rare that every week you reflect on who you are and your role in your life and your responsibility to the people around you that also contributes to that sense of belonging and feeling like a part of something that's greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's interesting because when I've never really thought about it from that perspective and so gaining the perspective from both of you has really made me realize that like this thing that I thought that I lost or like I don't do anymore, I don't have anymore. I've just found the space to do all these things Mm -hmm. in a different way. Yes. And that's on healing. (laughs) (laughs) Today on healing, we have. (laughs) Yeah, I think true of a lot of queer people where you end up kind of building a queer church. Like you, you find people who are willing to talk about like 
astrology or talk about the moon cycles or whatever is kind of drawing you and your sort of questions and your spirituality, you find those people and that becomes your, your belonging, your people. You know, what also does is uh, starting a nonprofit and having monthly <laughs> meetings with your favorite humans. <laughs> like you're Galen, you were talking about euphoria. And I mean, I wish I was invited to that because it sounds amazing. <gasps> oh. oh, my God. You are absolutely invited to it. For the QCC, we have our monthly board meetings where I cook dinner for everyone. And the first hour of our meeting is just us eating together and hanging out and like building our our friendships because most of us were not, we were not friends before we were on this board together. And so that monthly ritual of sharing a meal. Yeah. And just like emotionally supporting each other and like offloading what we're going through. We call it our distresses. Like what was your distress this month? What was your liberation this month? Mm. Really like builds that support and sense of community that honestly, I probably encouraged because of my religious background, because sharing meals with people is something that's very like inherent to Christian tradition. Yeah. The table. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should do a whole episode on food and community because it's such a big part of our lives, you know, I'm writing that down. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That is such a good idea. Also, I will never pass up an opportunity to talk Perfect. about food. Also, we like. have a chef <laughs> on our board. So oh, that works. And it's not me. <laughs> I'm the one who cooks. But we also have a show. Um, but yeah, food is like something that we as humans relate to, like across cultures, across languages, like across every other kind of identity. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Although as just calling back to like what Beth said earlier about being hesitant to call herself a writer, can you not just call yourself a chef? If you write, you're a writer. And if you cook you really amazing food, I would say that you might be a chef. <laughs> I will accept. <laughs> Other ideas I had of what religions uh, do well is support networks. So mm-hmm. building local geographical communities where people can really rely on each other and go to in times of need, whether that's like physical needs, like food or childcare, mm-hmm. but also like hopefully mental and emotional needs. Not always, but Not always. <laughs> you know, a, good, a good, healthy church that that is a place where you can go to for guidance and, and all of these different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that at its best, it can become a movement for good social change. Like if you are sort of coming together around certain values or deeply felt priorities, I guess. I mean, it's a it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because that can be directed toward all kinds of injustices as well, which we've seen, especially, I would say, in the white evangelical church, um, not only in the States, but in Canada. But I think when, especially when there's marginalized people at the center of those religious groups, it can be this real powerful force for change. There's so much strength in unity. And when people are religious, there's this like inherent belief in morality, which I think gives extra oomph to challenging perceived injustice, let's say. 
Mm-hmm. Or even the sense that God is asking you to do that, which again can be yeah. abused like crazy if it's applied to something that's very immoral. But um, when you feel like you're being, you know, directed or called to do something, that is a, a strong impetus. Yeah. All really great things to learn from and apply to when you're building your own community. Mm. Okay, let's let's talk about toxicities. The flip side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um cults. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, I was so glad that you wrote notes about cults here because I, I'm actually kind of a closet cult nerd. I mean, part of me is just like fascinated by them, but I also just feel as a pastor that really all pastors should study cults <laughs> because we need to know what to avoid. <laughs> we need yeah. to know when things are getting dangerous and it's so easy to slip over a line, I think, into really dangerous toxicity, like you were saying. So I, I think we need to talk more about cults and what, what d- defines them and leads us into that territory. I feel like that line between that kind of like cult-like behavior and what a lot of people think about churches or religion, it's, well, they sit yeah. so close to each other that I'm just curious from your words, like, what do you feel like pushes a specific church or a specific religion over that line? Mm. I mean, I'm an etymology nerd, too, and like a word nerd, and I know that words can be slippery. So like maybe what a cult was when I was young in church being taught what to avoid is different than how I would see it now. But I think generally it really does have to do with power and how power is held and how much um, room there is for people to be themselves and for people to have other interests and to have other uses of their time and energy. I think that where I start to get nervous is religious systems that, you know, usually have a very central leader who is not questioned or accountable to others religious communities that really oppose critical thinking and questions and doubt and leaving, like you're not really supposed to leave or you get penalized. And that really dominate your time and your energy to the point that they encourage you to cut ties with the other parts of your life, with your family, with your community, and really manipulate and suppress your emotions and require you to really get permission or guidance for how to to think and how to act and how to feel. So it's really about behavior control through guilt and fear. And I'll say like a lot of Christian churches practice that kind of thing, even on a lower level. And so that's why I think especially churches that are trying to be safe spaces for queer people need to kind of focus on the opposite of all of that. (laughs) A lot of stuff around accountability and transparency with money and power structures as well. So yeah, I think we need to be aware of those dangers. I feel like queerness and like coming into your queerness and being your authentic self is almost the opposite of a cult mentality. Mm. Mm. very individual yeah and I I have also found through my explorations of like my spirituality now versus like what I was raised to believe that like queerness is really the antidote to a lot of religious indoctrination Hmm. I think that's beautiful I don't think I've ever really connected those dots quite in that way but I I really like that you've got me thinking on a whole new line S (laughs) I do think, yeah, I would agree with you. Like I definitely broke away from the church when I began thinking outside of the box in regards to like my sexuality and, but not even in necessarily a queer way, but also even in a more heteronormative way, I just like sexuality kind of broke me out of the boundaries of like 
what was taboo and what was not within mm. the spiritual community. Because I feel like when you're queer, you you know, usually we start with sexuality. That happens for a lot of people. So when you start by rejecting the binary or or like the one end of the binary of mm-hmm. oh, I am straight and I have to marry an opposite gender then you begin to question a lot of other things. You begin to question white supremacy mm-hmm. and, and the role that that plays in how you view the world. And I, for me, especially like queerness was a key that unlocked a lot of that yeah. ability that like way beyond my queerness, how I related to the rest of the world and how I understood world operated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at its best, it would also help you question, like break out of those binaries and boxes when it comes to how you view the divine and how you view what's sacred and who God is or who creator is. I think that queer people tend to have a broader outside the box way of approaching that too, which is beautiful. So personally, I, I do still believe in God, a deity, but my God is Mm non-binary because I am non-binary and I do believe that I am made in the image of my creator. Mm -hmm. And so I have been trying to teach myself to use they, them pronouns, which is really hard because that he, him is really (laughs) built in there. And especially like I, you know, will still talk to other people about spirituality and religion, especially like my siblings. And it's really hard to use pronouns that fit with my view of God around people that don't have that view of God. Mm, totally. Yeah, it's hard. It's really indoctrinated for a lot of us who grew up in mainstream church, really, to get out of those he, him pronouns and to see God as like a genderful God, a God that contains all genders because all of us are made in the image of God. And one of my favorite, you know, feminists, quotes is that if God is male, then male is God. I think it's Mary Daly who said that. And so we have to break out of that or or else we'll never break out of the patriarchy. Right. (laughs) That's so true. So what about you? What pronouns do you use for God? Yeah. I mean, for a while, I think the first thing that broke me out of some of that God is male was trying to use she, her for God. Like, especially when I would pray through the Psalms, I would just replace them all and see how it hit me differently. And it was amazing (laughs) how differently it sounded sometimes when I use she, her pronouns for God, but more recently, yeah, experimenting with they, them. And my favorite is when we can take, say like a, a hymn or a worship song at open way and use all three, like sprinkle them throughout, maybe even try a neo pronoun in there to really shake it up. But Oh, I love that. One of my favorite songs we do actually has three different parts sung simultaneously. And we just decided to put a he, him in one, a she, her in the other, and a they, them, and to have them all sung at once. And I think that's the closest we can get to really um, singing about who God is, is when we can do that all at the same time. So I have a question then in this vein, since we kind of went on this tangent. (laughs) Yeah, we got away from toxicity. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll come back to it. Who, like, the Holy Trinity is taught in a very, like, specific way of, like, Mm -hmm. God the Father and Jesus the Son and then the Holy Spirit. How do you view the Trinity through a queer lens or, like, Mm. more open lens? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think 
one of the the most interesting theological approaches to the Trinity has to do with this idea of, I mean, it's actually quite a sexual idea when I think about it, but perichoresis, which just means like interpenetration, (laughs) especially that way. It sounds very queer because it's about really like them. It's sort of like this divine dance where they're flowing into each other. And I think especially one of my favorite people is a a queer uh, non-binary person who is studying, they're doing their PhD in um, queer and Pentecostal theology. And that's like a very charismatic, usually very conservative branch of theology, but uh, they're also a polyamorous person. And and they have some interesting views of polyamory around the Trinity. And I just, they, they blow my mind every time I talk to them. But I think when it comes to gender, there's definitely feminine imagery around the Holy Spirit. The, the word for spirit in Hebrew is a, is a female word, ruach. That, I think, is, is automatically built into that trinity. I always use she, her pronouns for the Holy Spirit. And I think it's very biblically sound to do that. And I just think Jesus was really queer. Yeah. Like from a very, um, you know, crass perspective, like we could say that if Jesus really was born of Mary and, and, you know, conceived by the Holy spirit that Jesus has one X chromosome and no Y. <laughs> so maybe Jesus is intersex, you know, maybe you know, Jesus did really queer what it meant to be masculine back in that, that culture and some of the ways that he acted. So I think he also queers these ideas of the boundaries between death and life and between humanity and divinity. So I think there's so much that we can take even from scripture, which is written out of a very patriarchal perspective and really queer our image of the Trinity. So I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm not going to lie. Like, I feel like I know a lot of Catholic upbringing, like gay men who their sexual awakening was those like Jesus sculptures. <laughs> like Jesus is a hottie. <laughs> they drew him very well. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> when Elin and I were watching the church service a couple of months ago mm-hmm. in preparation for this episode, we kind of touched on this, like, what are God's pronouns? Like, who is the the Holy Trinity? And I kind of explained, like, how I view God and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And Galen asked, does that make Jesus daddy? <laughs> we kind of lost our minds for a few minutes. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's where you're glad to have that mute button, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. You just have your own kind of uh, giggle fest and then rejoin the church service. <laughs> I think we even talked about kind of like either before or after that service as well. I was like, man, was Jesus just like a hippie, like went into the desert and like did a bunch of drugs? Because like that sounds pretty fun <laughs> also. <laughs> I'm like, homeboy just went out there and like hallucinated. <laughs> if you watch Godspell, that's the idea you get. <laughs> gotta love the 70s images of who jesus was (laughs) yeah i mean could be right could be wrong i guess we won't know but pretty fun (laughs) i I think mushrooms are are part of god's creation for a reason it's true there's a lot of uh fun natural substances no Mm -hmm. yep definitely that's a whole other podcast whole other other connection to community food and (laughs) natural substances okay let's go back to toxicities (laughs) (laughs) i mean okay i had this thought earlier when we were talking about cults and galen i don't know 
how much you'll relate to this, but Mm. my Christian community was also very structured around national identity because Mm. I grew up in a predominantly Dutch Christian community. And so not only were we united by our faith, but we were also united by this like uh, bicultural way of living. And the high school that I went to was predominantly Dutch and started by Dutch people. My teachers went to my church, like it was very intermingled. And when I describe what it was like to grow up like that to friends now, especially queer friends who don't have that bicultural identity, it sounds like a cult to them. (laughs) Yeah. Because like people married Dutch people. I, I have family members that married people that are related to them by marriage. Right. And it's like such a deeply interwoven community. And when someone like me really steps outside of that, I lost a lot of sense of community because I moved away. First of all, I moved four cities over and I dyed my hair and I got tattoos, which like most people do not have. And I like, do not look as Dutch as I used to. And (laughs) it's just really interesting to me. And I know Galen, you are also have a bicultural identity. And I just wonder if you experienced a similar kind of thing. Uh, The interesting thing with, I think, where my cultural identity interlocks with my religion is that those two forces are definitely um, grappling and like very, very polar opposite of each other. Uh, How my family got into religion, and it really was truly just my mom. Like, uh, I think she's converted a few other family members, like her one sister and other members, but like my grandma, like my mom's mom and all her other siblings and like other family members are either not religious per se or like selectively religious, but more swaying towards like Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was actually a really like polarizing fact. Like when my mom was converted and my mom was converted by a high school friend when they moved from Hong Kong to uh, Canada, to Ontario. And so, yeah, my mom, I think was like really the only Asian person other than her family members in that area in a predominantly white neighborhood when she moved here. And the church was, I'm assuming, probably pretty predominantly white as well, too. Uh, And it caused like a big rift between like my mom and some of her family members as well, too. So it was like kind of a, it was like, it's interesting because like my mom chose religion over other aspects of her life. And so like, that's, I think, part of a big thing as to why it's so important to her and why it's almost like, yeah, she got indoctrinated into it. Mm. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, obviously she built other forms of community through that, but it was definitely like a situation for sure. And like, and then she brought my dad in and like my dad wasn't super religious before and isn't really that religious now. And so like she was kind of like bringing a lot of people in to expose them to that type of culture saving or, or whatnot. Yeah. But yeah, she, she just got, I think that's part of the reason why she's like so into it is like, she wasn't even born into it. And she like made this very like intense decision to do so. And then, yeah. And then like dove in, you know? Yeah. 
So yeah, kind of it's kind of like almost opposite experience in that way, but yeah. Well, that actually brings me to my next point because my experience was being a part of the dominant culture and like it was predominantly Dutch, but it wasn't a hundred percent Dutch Canadian. And we do have people who are Korean, people who moved here from like a lot of immigrants from other countries that make up probably 20, I would say 25% of the church that I grew up in. And it's obviously recognizing my incredible amount of white privilege and, and growing up in a community of people that looked like me, but there is this like compulsory assimilation mm. that has to happen in order to join a community like mine when you do not look like me or my community. Right. And so I think that relates to the experience that your mom had where like she had to abandon parts of herself in order to be a part of this community. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. That's a that's a mark of toxicity in any community, but especially in religious groups where it is sort of a you have to leave something at the door, some aspect of your identity, whether it's your queerness or your ethnicity or your culture or um, how you experience your mental health. Like you have to leave that behind when you enter this community or this space yeah. and uh, turn that off or, you know, compartmentalize it, almost break yourself up into pieces. Yeah. And some people believe that to the extent that, you know, when they come out as queer, they don't see any possibility of, of still holding on to an aspect of faith because they've been taught those things are polar opposites. You know, yeah. there's kind of this us versus them mentality that can seep right into your, your very personhood where you're, you're split from part of yourself. And that's, that's definitely a danger of religious community. Which like in a, like that's on a individual level, but then that same idea, if we expand it to a national level, that's yep. where colonization comes from. Yep. That's where genocide comes from. That's where the rampant discrimination comes from is that idea that you have to become like the dominant culture or the dominant group in order to be a part of this religion. Yep. Yeah. Associating all parts of your community's way of doing things with divinity, with with what it means to be holy or good, you know, and not being able to see aspects of sacredness and dignity and truth in other cultures that they might already have God with them, <laughs> that we're not bringing it to them and have to make them look like us to accept it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One toxicity that I really want to mention is the integration of church and state. Mm -hmm. And imposing Ooh. belief systems on non-believers yeah. Yeah. is something that just really gets me going. <laughs> and that like was probably one of the earlier things that drove a wedge between me and what my community believed. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of an extension of that evangelical pushiness, but into all areas of how our society functions, right? Pushing our way into everything instead of leaving room for people to find their way in different ways. And, you know, I think one of the things I was the most proud of my dad for as a pastor, because my dad's also was a Baptist pastor. But I remember when I was a kid in Saskatchewan and we still had the Lord's Prayer in schools, we were all reciting it at assemblies. 
And we went to a school board meeting where they were debating whether to keep that. And he argued against it. He said, like, there's no reason the Christian prayer should be be forced upon all these kids that may hold all kinds of different beliefs. And and that really shaped me in terms of seeing that separation as being really important in, in terms of a pluralistic society and how good that is. Yeah. And it, it really comes back to like what I said earlier about churches not wanting to be in the world and yet having so much influence over mm. society. And like, it's such a hypocrisy. And like, obviously there's so many different kinds of hypocrisies, but that's, that's one that really drives me nuts is like, you can't have it both ways. Right. And you, you can't celebrate yourselves and then vilify other people for just being themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think like a big correlation between what you're saying with church and the state is like churches, uh, how we are, lo- we lose autonomy over our bodies in our culture via the church, like yeah. via the freedom to mm. have abortions, the freedom to, tattoo your body the quote like that the body is a temple if the body is your own personal temple then shouldn't we all have the autonomy over our bodies if doing sex work or being very liberal with your sex life is a way of you worshiping your body and therefore worshiping your temple how is it that a state or a specific sanction of people can specify what you can and can't do to yourself Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's also like from my semi-decent understanding of the Bible, there's not a lot of (laughs) actual biblical basis for the integration of church and state. No, no. Most often in scripture, it has to do with this empire that really like is being fought against, not one that's being sought to take over. Jesus was working against the oppressive religious forces that were harming the community. Is mm-hmm. Jesus also Robin Hood? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Robin Hood Jesus? Is Robin Hood daddy? Yes. <laughs> Robin Hood, I don't know if you've seen Disney's Robin Hood, but Robin Hood is definitely daddy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the energy for sure. Absolutely. Let's talk about healing. Oh, nice. I'm curious how Beth, you kind of heal those concepts within yourself or um, help other people to heal those concepts. So I'm sure you probably hear a lot of stories like S and mine that uh, people are coming with big questions or like big prejudices against the church per se, but clearly they're searching for something with you guys or are just curious. Mm-hmm. And how did you, did you have to heal any of those aspects within yourself in order to kind of reform your new connection with God mm-hmm. and your clearness at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I was on a long, long journey of, of healing that. I mean, I don't think I ever came to the point where I felt like God didn't love me or that I, I wasn't allowed to, to continue loving God, which some people do because of the ways that they've been taught feel. Um, so I'm grateful for that, but I think it took me a long time to figure out how to reconcile those parts of myself. And I'm just so aware of how individual that healing journey is for different people. And so one of the functions of open way as a church sometimes, or as my role as a pastor is actually kind of a, 
a doula out of faith. <laughs> like there's definitely people who have landed at open way for a time because they feel like it's kind of their last best chance of being part of a church community, but end up realizing that actually what they need is, is space and time away from church completely. And so my job as a pastor is to be open-handed enough to say like, this could be someone's best option for healing to not just put themselves in, you know, even the most well-intentioned and trying to be not queer phobic space led by a queer pastor. Like it still might be too much. It might bring up too much trauma for them and it might be best for them to take time away. I took some time away after I came out to did, did brunch church for a long time with some <laughs> roommates and friends and it was great. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, I love brunch church. Yeah, exactly. Brunch church is very queer. But I think that, you know, being open handed, realizing that God has lots of ways, the divine has lots of ways of finding all of us. And it doesn't always happen through church or primarily through church, that there are other communities that can introduce us to God and help us understand that we're loved. So to, to be counter culty, <laughs> to be the opposite of a cult is to giving plenty of permission to leave and having these fluid boundaries where we say like, we want to keep in touch with you, even as you're not here. And like, I, I was so glad yesterday to meet with a member of my church who no longer calls herself a Christian and is exploring all kinds of things, but just still wants me to be in on her life and still calls me her pastor. <laughs> I just think that's such a huge honor. So I can't dictate how that's going to look for people, how that reconciling process will look. I'm becoming more comfortable with realizing that that's going to be different for each person. That's amazing. I honestly don't think I've ever heard a pastor or even like, um, just even a member of a church or a Christian not be incredibly pushy about <laughs> and being the right way or just being like, there is no other way. Like you right. have to feel this way or you have to do this. Like this is the best way to be. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone mm. just be like, yeah, you do your thing and like know that you're loved and it's all good. You're right, Galen, though it's part of the toxicity is the, especially with Christian church, is the sort of evangelical uh, pushiness of like, I have to convince you using fear and shame most often to be part of this. You know, I have to scare you into God's love, which just does not work. Like if anything queer, especially queer kids who grown up in the church learn is that tough love and like scaring people into things is not going to be healthy. And it's like, it's no shame on like other people because it's honestly like, yeah, when my mom's done it or like other members of churches that I belong to, like, I know that it's just their deep fear that they're right and that I will not be with them Mm -hmm. in some sort of future. So it's like, I do understand that, that it comes from a fear of losing me. That's really gracious of you. (laughs) But it's also... You know, I don't like being told what to do. So like the more someone tells me what to do, the least likely I'm going to do that. (laughs) Counter and it's the sort of reverse psychology effect. Possibly a little bit. (laughs) Now I'm like, oh, I'm intrigued. Maybe I'll come again. (laughs) Unless that's the trick. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Strategies. But I do appreciate it. I've never heard that before. You know, I've never I think, heard that mindset. I think one thing I read recently is like Jesus tended to do a lot of preaching on hillsides. And the interesting thing about hillsides versus the synagogues that were around in his day is that you can come and go. You can decide when to leave. You know, there's no walls keeping you in. So another plus for Zoom is that we have no walls. 
<laughs> you can leave Zoom with the click of a button. Like you don't even have to walk away. Mm-hmm. It's true. You don't even have to have your camera on. No one even knows what you look like. Right. <laughs> I was going to say that the pushiness of Christians very quickly develops into manipulative behavior too. Yes. This exchange of like resources or guidance that has an agenda Mm-hmm. It's not just like open-handed giving, but it's really a transaction. Like you commit your soul to my religion and I will give you X, Y, and Z yep. in, in return. Yeah, totally. What you and Galen were talking about earlier about Galen being more receptive to the freedom mm-hmm. of coming into spirituality in your own journey is also really psychologically sound Mm. in the 2020th decade. (laughs) We're really learning that like tough love is not an effective way to connect with people. Yeah. It actually creates a lot of separation and distance Yep, because it feels unsafe. And if you want to feel unsafe, you're not going to have an authentic connection with the like parent or guidance figure. Mm-hmm. And so then your commitment to that religion, if it's fear-based is while it may be really strong, it's not free mm-hmm. and it won't hold up throughout the entirety of your life. There will at some point, I believe something that challenges it and shakes you and you will not have firm foundation for that belief because it was based in a fear of the unknown or a fear right. of eternity or, or you, you know all of these different tactics <laughs> but when you come into a spirituality or a religious belief in freedom mm-hmm. with the ability to question and the ability to and the freedom to doubt you have so much more opportunity for an authentic expression of your spirituality. Yeah. And an opportunity to deeply connect. Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's something I wish that as Christians, we inherited more of from, from the Jewish communities that were our original roots is this mentality of wrestling with God and really not having these certainties or these, you know, cause the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. It's feeling like we know it all. And we have to teach the exact truth where in a lot of Jewish culture, a lot of Jewish faith, it's all about multiple perspectives on things, asking all the questions, wrestling with God, just like Jacob wrestled with the angel, you know, this sense of like, we don't have it all together and we need to keep figuring this out. And I feel like we've lost a lot of that in Christianity and it's become about resting in what we think we're certain about. I have never heard that. Hmm. That the opposite of faith is certainty. That's blowing, that's blowing my mind. Because faith is about not knowing for sure, right? <laughs> But we tend to vilify doubt and questions and and be afraid of them when really it's the core of what the journey of faith is about is is digging in and and figuring things out and keeping questioning things. Wow. (laughs) I know my my mind is just I'm just thinking about so many things. (laughs) 
You can chew on that one while I chew on yours about how queerness is the opposite of cults, because I got to think about that for a lot longer. There's some good taglines in this. If we need a tagline, there's some good ones. Mm -hmm. We have to come up with an episode title. So there you go. That that might be something in there. How can we heal religious communities or Mm -hmm. like you have done, build a new community with from what you've talked about about open weight and the little bit that I've interacted with it, it really feels like healing is a central part of mm. the community that you're building. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think I think it comes down to when we look at those elements of cults, it's like doing the opposite things, <laughs> you know, so where cults are about like a lack of accountability or transparency. We're all about that, you know, like we can make communities that are so transparent about how they use their money or who's in power. So accountable to the community, yeah, a cult that's centered around one leader. We need to share our power like that's going to be so key, especially with people who have been denied power, people who have been marginalized. They need to be in the center. And that's really how Jesus did it. <laughs> he was constantly gathering the ones who were excluded and saying, you guys are going to be the, the foundation of the church. So we need to follow that example, I think. You know, where you're dominating people's time and energy and associations and a cult, we want to be freeing people to live their lives and to be practicing their faith in their everyday life and seeing that as important and not spending all their time in a church building. I think that's part of healing, too, is integrating it into your everyday and again, keeping that open door for people to come and go when they need to and trusting that God's going to work beyond the walls of your church and your community, that there's going to be times and seasons where people need to step away and, and do healing in a different place. Creating that space for critical thinking and doubt and questions and uh, allowing all emotions to be present instead of trying to manipulate or, or suppress them. Trying to do the opposite of guilt and fear, which I think is about love and freedom so many ways that we can, you know, start to lean towards that, but it's about rethinking everything. So I think a lot of churches get scared by that. (laughs) I really hope and wish and honestly pray for freedom for the community that I grew up in. Yeah. Because it, it, there's such a like Puritan aspect to it and like so much fear of losing power or losing a sense of identity. But I think like what I found is a freedom. Like I lost my religion and I found freedom in my spirituality and in doing Mm -hmm. so have become a much more whole, healthy person who is far more deeply connected Mm -hmm. to myself, to my creator, to my friends and, and all of my communities, except that one. Yeah. How sad that they don't get to experience that part of you now, you know, (laughs) their loss, really. Yeah. 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 I always think about if I could take away certain parts of like upbringing or, or whatnot, like would I not go through those experiences? Would I choose to grow up in an atheist household or any other type of household? And it's like so many of these things, build you and sometimes dismantling those things also build you even more Mm -hmm. 
Yep. You need something to push back against to develop something good sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also think we have to shift from focusing so much on beliefs to focusing more on practices and, and rituals. Maybe if that word is easier for you, like the, the ritual that you had with your friends, Galen, like I think beliefs come and go and we need to, to challenge them and we need to wrestle with what we think and what we believe and how we're interacting with other people and they're bringing us new ways of seeing things, but we can keep practices consistent. And that's why at Open Way, we, we structure our membership around shared practices, things like practicing rest and practicing prayer and practicing uh, giving and having enough and um, and knowing when enough is enough. Uh, and, and that way, people who are coming who might not even call themselves Christians can still be members with us because we're all trying to see how this way of practicing our faith will actually transform us as opposed to forcing people to sign a statement of beliefs that can't change. Yes. Yes, I love that. Because even when you're filled with doubt or you feel like you're completely disconnected from religion or spirituality or Christianity or whatever, Mm -hmm. the stability of being, of practicing something with people who love you, no matter what, will sustain you. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just read a post that Adrienne Marie Brown did today on Instagram, I think on her blog too, about the practices that have sustained Adrian's life during the last several months of COVID. And it has to do with like doing Wordle every day and swimming every day and doing some meditation. And yeah, those are the things that ground us. They give us a grounding. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you verbalize it like that too, because it just really community and that word is almost become synonymous with what we want family to be. Mm. Like that's just that inherent connection, no matter what, that is stronger than anything. That's what you hope yeah. for. And, you know, with queer people, sometimes that's not like our blood relation. Sometimes that's chosen family, but that choice yeah. to be family, it almost is bigger than and stronger than any other factor. Mm. So true. And I think that's what gives queer people such a gift to bring back to the church because church is supposed to be about chosen family. Like according to the teachings of Jesus, like we're grafted into a family, we're we're adopted into the family of God, but queer people have insights into that, that cishet people need to know about. And so that's why it's sad that they're excluding so many queer people from their midst. I also see community as friendship Mm-hmm. But like on a much larger scale, like a, a web of friendship. Yeah. But I think in order to have a healthy community, you have to know how to be in a healthy friendship. Yeah, that's true. This like two way relationship that is unconditional and supportive in two ways and is not always equal. Like I think people assume that a good friendship is equal in some way, but that's so like anti-human, you know, like nothing in humanity is equal or fair. And it's, it's more about building a connection that sustains inequality. Mm. Yeah. A mutual connection that goes through seasons of inequality. Yeah. I like that. The sermon that, Galen and I 
came to church for had a, a part about unlikely friendship. Mm, yeah, right. I remember that one. And I was thinking about that, like in terms of building a community, you know, mm-hmm. from this idea that community is friendship on a larger scale. So then where does unlikely friendship fit into that connection to people, even when fundamental beliefs are different, even when core identities are different, where like experiences are different. Yeah. I mean, unlikely friendship is one of our shared practices at Open Ways. So it's something we're inviting everybody to practice regardless of what their faith looks like that particular day, because we just believe it's important to have an intentional attitude toward crossing our paths with people who are very different from us because of some of what you two have talked about, about insularity and how easily religious communities especially become very us versus them, very insular, very like an enclave of a particular kind of person and a group think develops. Whereas Jesus, when, when he was gathering his disciples, he picked all kinds of people who naturally would actually probably not like each other very much. He picked this like zealot who was like a far left kind of person was trying to like stab government people sometimes. <laughs> and he picked a tax collector who is like working for the empire and betraying his own Jewish community. And these people are supposed to be in this original group of 12 together. So, yeah, I think that's the tension between similarity and belonging and difference and learning and growth that we need to keep playing with this tension in our communities. Tension is healthy. Mm -hmm. It can be very creative. Yeah. Yep. And can create really deep relationships or friendships that go beyond a lot of other physical aspects. Because it breaks things open. Mm -hmm. Right. And it forces you to be vulnerable about what you're feeling. Yes. In order to move forward from that. Yeah, that's true. And to healthily deal with conflict and difference is such an important skill to learn. And it's definitely something that no one is innately good at. Everyone has to constantly be working on. Mm -hmm. Especially Canadian Christians, I would say we suck at conflict. (laughs) (laughs) We just push it under the surface. And that's something I'm trying to grow in these days is like, how can in my meetings with my co-pastors and with boards and things like that, how can we actually be mining for tension, like be trying to unearth it? Because that's where the good stuff actually happens. We can grow so much if we don't just keep smoothing it over and pushing it away. On a small side tangent, like politically, that freedom convoy, I think was a really game changer for Canadian society Mm. because it's a kind of conflict that we haven't had before very often where Right. White people are protesting something and occupying our like government building and being Mm -hmm. treated so differently than any of the marginalized groups that peacefully protest. Right. And this like stark contrast and the response to that conflict is so different. Yeah. It's pretty stark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that's something that we can look to healthy communities for guidance on, right? Yeah. Like where we are learning to heal and learning to find this tension and learning to work together and form unlikely friendships and connect with people that we fundamentally disagree with. 
Mm. That those are all really great examples of how to navigate living in a society that has such different fundamental beliefs. Yep. Yeah. It's so, so crucial for our future, really, that we figure that out. And, and to this point, faith communities have been part of the problem. I would say more than part of the solution. Absolutely. I mean, the faith community was part of that freedom convoy. So mm-hmm. there was definitely right. a part of the problem. <laughs> okay. We touched on this a little bit, but maybe we'll just kind of wrap our episode up with this. How do queer individuals heal their religious trauma? And Beth, how do you personally justify being part of a religion and leading a church when this religion has such poor representation where Christianity is fundamentally linked to colonialism, genocide, and white supremacy? I'll just save this the easy stuff for last. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, like I think that's the core question for I hope it's the core question for a lot of Christians is like, is there enough good here to warrant sticking around with this? You know, all of us probably have intersections in our identity, parts that bring us privilege and and parts like my queerness that tend to marginalize me in the church. But I think we always need to be dealing with the parts where we have privilege and we have contributed to harm for other people. And. I think what keeps me part of it is that there is this tension in the story of Christianity itself in scripture between oppressor and oppressed. Like you see the empire and you see the rebel force all through scripture. You even have prophets in the Old Testament who are acknowledging that religion can be used to oppress oppress people and was being used in that time. And so there is this thread of, I guess, what you guys in your community would call distress and liberation all through it. And so I think I see in that an acknowledgement of life as it is. And I feel like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes our healing comes right at the wounding place. Like so many of our poisons are actually medicines that are being misused or used too much of. And so, yeah, often we have to leave for a while. We have to get away from the things that are traumatizing and triggering us. But one of the most interesting friendships I have right now is with a woman who started attending our church who um, has been away from Christianity for like 40 years because she got kicked out as a queer kid and is now realizing like, maybe I have to wrestle with this story that I was part of as a kid and see if there's anything here worth healing into. (laughs) So it's this story of transformative justice and forgiveness that keeps grabbing me, you know, and I just don't want to leave the good stuff to the bullies and the people who are going to twist it and abuse it. Like it's too valuable to, to, to walk away from. And I think marginalized people need to be at the center of the church that's moving forward so that that healing can happen. And so I want to be part of that. And I don't want to walk away from it an escapist way and say, well, I'm just not going to identify with that. And that way I'm justified. I'm not part of that anymore because then there isn't any healing that happens. There's no reconciliation that happens with first nations folks or with um, queer folks or anyone else that's been hurt by the church. It's just an ending. So I have hope. I mean, on my best days, (laughs) I have hope (laughs) that there is enough in this faith that can be redeemed, that can be turned around. And I take great inspiration from say the black church and the ways that You know, the Bible was used to justify slavery in the United States and in Canada 
And then the black church took this this source of justification of slavery and found redemption and freedom as another part of it, because so much of scripture is what we bring to it and how the lens we view it through. So that was kind of a rambly answer, but it's a question I ask myself a lot. So I'm really glad you had the courage to ask it because I think it's what we need to be asking ourselves. I think it's fundamental part of anyone who's queer and exploring spirituality in general is because not just Christianity, but all religions are associated with harm on some level. And how Mm -hmm. do you say that you're a part of that, you know, when it's literally inflicted harm on you? So thank you for your rambling answer, because I I hope something made sense. Yeah, I think thanks for like answering the questions as well too like I know that we haven't hasn't been super easy peasy questions the whole way through and a lot of listening to what you say was pretty much the same things that I was like asking myself it's so refreshing to hear you have that full perspective Hmm. that's cool it's refreshing to be asked these kind of questions like the majority of the interviews or panels or things I do have to do with Christian people asking me about my queerness (laughs) That's what I'm used to talking about. So this is a whole different, this is like queer people asking me about my faith. And it's just a very cool way to approach things for me. I had to do a lot more thinking in preparation for this than I often have to do for the other side. So it's good for me. I love that. That's, I didn't even think about it like that too, but Mm. yeah, it's, I don't often get to ask a queer person about their faith in like a healed way. Hmm. I don't know many queer Christians. Right. And it is hard. That's one of the things I think that queer people who are trying to rediscover faith deal with is that like in a lot of faith spaces, their queerness isn't accepted. They can't talk about it. And in a lot of queer spaces, you can't talk about faith without triggering things for people or making them think like, why the heck would you go back to that? You know? I have two identities that are in the closet, depending on which community I'm in. It's like either my queerness is closeted or my spirituality is closeted. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to have queer faith spaces where people can start to bring those things back together and find bridges between them instead of just being walked all over on both sides, you know? Yeah. Mm hmm. That's so interesting because it really ties into a lot of the conversations you're having. We have a an episode on like racial issues and like that was my big thing about even being a biracial person. Yeah. Just being like, I do not belong on either side. And it's so interesting to think about other intersecting uh, identities that leave people feeling the same way that are not necessarily race-based as well too. Totally. I think a lot of bisexual people feel that like any of those, that would be a fascinating panel to bring people together who have those similar kind of not belonging in either camp kind of a binary episode. Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. Any last thoughts or questions for us or anything? I mean, I just feel so grateful that you are both and, and your whole team is doing what you're doing in Vancouver. I think there's such a need for, for people who are intentionally thinking through how queer community can be healthy and how it can be diverse and how it can be fostered and not just like happen, you know, naturally, because <laughs> so often we out of our trauma, we fall into patterns that aren't healthy. And so you guys having these conversations is so hopeful to me. 
because I don't think everybody is is going to find community in a church. And I want to see lots of non-church queer uh, community spaces thrive as well. So thank you for doing this work. It's important work. And I want to be funneling people your way all the time. And if you ever find someone who you think would benefit from open way, feel free to push them my way too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, but I think also, I think that there is a lot to learn from each other because I see your origin story and our origin story are very similar in the sense that right. like we were wrestling with our identity as queer in relation to our community in general and wanting to start something where we center healing and we bring people together and connect with a diverse group of people Mm -hmm. and support each other and have just like so much love. And so I agree with you. I think it is really important to have non-religious spaces, obviously as a non-Christian person, but (laughs) like, I, I really do think it's important but also to be welcoming to people who are atheists, but also people of faith and really find a place in our community for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. We'll send anyone your way that is looking for an affirming, open armed space to wrestle with the larger questions of life and spirituality. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Yes. Thank you for doing this with us. I'm so grateful for you, like that you shared your wisdom and, and answered our really difficult questions and <laughs> that we're like, yeah. they're hard questions to answer, especially when they're coming from like very clearly personal places too, you know, want to, mm. <laughs> you don't want to say the wrong thing <laughs> and right, like, right. you know, maybe re-traumatize two little queers that are really struggling with this stuff. So thank you for your gentleness and your honesty and transparency. For sure. It's very, very appreciated. I think S and I were both like, we both were knew this was going to be an, an interesting podcast to kind of research and, and experience for ourselves. We're both a little like, I think nervous about it on edge and like, overly preparing we were like I don't know I don't know (laughs) like I we probably had four or five conversations about what we wanted to talk about that's great well thanks for taking the risk and for putting the work in it is hard to talk about this stuff it's it's traumatizing sometimes and so you you did it well done (laughs) and you did too (laughs) thank you now we're gonna put it out on the internet for anyone to listen to and Tell us what they think and feel about the things that we said, which I I'm really nervous for, but I'm also really excited for it because I I want to know how this conversation touches people. How does it make you feel? How have you been struggling? And we've said this before lots on our podcast, but it is a two-way conversation. If you have thoughts and feelings about this episode and you want to share those with us, we would love to hear about it. Uh, you can send us an email. You can send us a DM on Instagram. We will respond to the best of our ability. No, I, I, can't, I can't say for certainty how we will respond, but we will do our best. Thank you so much, Beth, for being on this episode with us. Thank you. And uh, see you all next time. 
Thanks for sticking around. If you're interested in learning more about QCC, you can check out our website, www.queercommunitycollective.com. Here, you can find links to our Instagram and Facebook. If you're interested in attending an event, subscribing to our newsletter, or just want to connect, email us at folks, that's F-O-L-X, at queercommunitycollective.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends, your crush, and that homophobic uncle you see every Christmas. It might just be what he needs. Either way, we're here for you. Have a gay day!